Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Nourish your mind with a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Visit irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. It's Wednesday, October the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. With me in studio, we're going to have nearly a full house of the Irish Times political staff. Jennifer Bray and Harry McGee will be joining us in a little while. Pat Leahy is here already. But first this morning, as it seems every morning at the moment, all eyes are still on Brexit and developments at Westminster, where two key votes took place yesterday evening on the deal between Boris Johnson's government and the EU on Britain's departure from the European Union. Our London editor, Dennis Staunton, is on the line. And first, Dennis, I suppose there might be some cause for celebration on the pro-Brexit side in that at least for the first time a motion supporting the progression of a withdrawal agreement was actually approved by the House of Commons. Yes, it was approved. And as you say, it was the first time any Brexit deal has got a majority in the House of Commons. And it was also a comfortable majority. It was a majority of 30. And uh, so in that sense, I think uh, the, both the government and the Brexit side uh, you know, can feel quite pleased with themselves. I think Boris Johnson also can feel quite pleased with the political skill that he used to get this together. Because if you look at what happened on Saturday, when they when they almost had a vote on the, um, on the deal, he had already managed to get all of the Spartans, uh, the, the uh, so-called Spartans, the hardline Brexiteers, to fall into line. So they had already publicly announced that they were in favour of his deal. And then what happened yesterday was that he got two other groups. One was almost all of the uh, conservative rebels who had lost the whip because they opposed a no-deal Brexit. Almost all of them came on board for the deal. And likewise, uh, 19 Labour MPs uh, voted for for the deal at its second reading, which isn't, of course, a final approval for the deal. But what it does mean that is that uh, it, they're voting in principle for this deal. And, of course, the second motion was uh, was defeated, the, the programme motion about the schedule, the sort of fast-track schedule which was proposed. But just to come back to that first vote first, was there surprise at the, the size of the majority there and perhaps the number of, of Labour MPs, 19 of them, who, who went along with the government? Yes, there was. And I think, you know, there was, I, I think it was remarkable, like every single Conservative MP, everybody with a Conservative whip, so, uh, you know, voted for this. So all kinds of people who said they were going to die in various ditches. Richard Drax, I think of as a particular example, this uh, MP who publicly apologised to the DUP after he voted for Mrs. May's deal on the third occasion. And he said how terrible it was that he had sort of gone against what uh, what they wanted. Well, this time he did this with a song in his heart and he uh, and he just trooped into the lobbies along with the rest of them. Uh, the DUP voted uh, against uh, the, the second reading of the bill. And that, I suppose, if you just go back, it, you know, really just a couple of weeks ago, we all thought that it was going to be impossible for Boris Johnson to find a majority without the DUP because we thought the DUP would unlock the votes of the Brexiteers. But in fact, he has just managed to get without the DUP, to get to unlock all of these blocks of votes. And certainly this majority of 30, although it's not fail-safe, and it certainly isn't proof against amendments as they come through uh, you know, during the um, 
uh, you know, during the course of the committee stage. Nonetheless, what it means is that uh, you know he uh, he does have some kind of uh, area of comfort. You know, to in, in terms of you know getting this bill through, and so he can afford a few, to lose a few of those votes as the time goes on. It is, I think, a kind of an example of the importance of momentum in politics. And Boris Johnson has quite successfully, I think, been building momentum towards acceptance of this deal, not just in in recent weeks, but really since he became uh, since he became prime minister but i suppose the question for him now dennis is you know whether he keeps going and tries to push it over the line or whether he will seek to cut and run and engineer a general election over uh, over the coming weeks is there any sense there yet as to which direction he will take well, what you always have is you've got two, uh, you know, melodies or two harmonies coming out of uh, out of Downing, Downing Street, and so you you tend to have, on the one hand, if you look at all the things we were just describing, this really quite uh, rational putting together of a majority, and in the same way, the the way in which he very rationally compromised with the EU, with Ireland and everything else to get the deal. And at the same time, you've got this accompanying soundtrack of kind of madness coming out of Downing Street where they're always about to, uh, you know, to fight to the death. They're always about to, you know, to tear up everything. They're going to destroy this. They're going to destroy that. And so at the moment, for that, you know, that particular uh, you know, narrative that's coming out of Downing Street or that part of Downing Street is saying, we're going to go straight on to an election unless they give us an extension lasting only 10 days, then we're going straight into a general election. And I think that Boris Johnson probably will say uh, that, you know, that what the country needs is a general election because he certainly wants one. Uh, but what we don't know just yet is what the European Union will do. It looks like, uh, you know, certainly Donald Tusk has recognized recommended that they just offer the extension which will, which the British government has asked for, which is an extension until the end of January. But the way the extensions tend to work is that you've got it until the end of January, but if you get your business done in terms of getting the, uh, the deal ratified, you can leave early. This and is the so, famous flextension of which there was yeah. much chat last night, I think. Yeah, and it, well, it's, it's basically it's, 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 it's the form of extension that Mrs. May was offered. So what it meant really was so the, the way it worked on that occasion, or the way it was worked out, was that you could, you know, as soon as you had ratified the uh, the deal in Parliament, and it was also signed off by the European Parliament, that you that the UK could leave on the second day of the month following that. So if, say, he got it done in uh, November, then they'd be gone by the second of December. So uh, so that would be. You know, uh, so in other words, you, just because you get it until the end of January doesn't mean you have to stay until the end of January. So there's a slightly kind of a phony uh, argument going on about the length of the extension. So, uh, you know, so then what he's got to do once he gets the extension is that he has to d- uh, decide, first of all, if he looks for an election. I'd say he probably will look for an election. And then what we don't know is uh, if he can get it. So they're uh, onto the Fixed Term Parliament Act. There are three ways that he can get a general election. One is 
he can ask for it and then he needs a two-thirds majority in the House to get that. He has failed to do that in the past uh, and to do that he really needs the support of the Labour Party. The second way is that there can be a vote of no confidence in his government, which could be uh, put by the leader of the opposition. He has not done that as yet, but if he does that, then what you have is a period of 14 days before you then uh, can go to uh, the 25-day period up to a general election. And the third would be a simple one-line motion which says, notwithstanding the terms of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, I want an election anyway on this date. The problem with that is that it can be amended so the date can be changed. They can introduce all kinds of other things to do with the franchise. Uh, people talk quite a lot about them, perhaps introducing votes for 16-year-olds. That you probably couldn't do for the next election because they're not already on the register. What you could do is to extend the franchise to EU citizens living in uh, in the UK, and there are three million of them, and they are on the register because they can vote in local and European elections. So, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, so that's a slightly dodgy way of going about it. Uh, Labour at the moment are officially saying they want an election, uh, as soon, and as soon as an extension is secure and they can be sure that there's no danger of a no-deal Brexit before an election, then they will go for it. But we'll see about that. Uh, you know, the fact is that, uh, you know, there's a very short window now before you can have an election, uh, you know, in time, in time for Christmas. Because what the uh, Cabinet Secretary, Mark Settle, has said is that the latest date you can have it before Christmas is the 12th of December. Because after that, all the village halls and school halls that you'd use as polling stations are booked up for Christmas events. And so you can't have it then. So, uh, so, so really, Could unless... Postpone all this, Christmas, I suppose. Well, you know, nobody wants to ruin Christmas. And so, uh, and so if you... Um, uh, you know, so in other words, you really need to move in the next couple of weeks to have an election before Christmas. And uh, if you look just at the political fundamentals, it's quite clear that for Boris Johnson, uh, an election as soon as possible is a good idea, either having just delivered Brexit or uh, being just prevented from delivering, delivering Brexit by uh, all these other people, but certainly to have Brexit in every, fresh in everybody's mind. So you still have the idea of this Leave coalition coming together again. And then obviously it's in the interests of the Liberal Democrats because uh, Brexit is what they're all about nowadays. And the moment that Brexit goes off, you know, as soon as Brexit happens, then the Liberal Democrats become a kind of divine remnant asking to rejoin the European Union. And that's likely to be a smaller group of people than the number of people who are supporting them now. And the Scottish National Party wants an election early because in uh, January or February, Alex Salmon goes on trial for various alleged sexual misdemeanors. And that's a trial that they don't really want happening in the middle of an election campaign. So the only people who have an interest in delaying an election are the Labour Party. And they do for two reasons. One is that they're way behind in the polls and they think that something might turn up. <clears throat> also, the fact that um, you know, the, the Remain vote is divided currently between them and the Liberal Democrats. And thirdly, the fact that they would like to uh, have an election which is not about Brexit. They want the election to be about uh, economic issues, social issues, ordinary things. And then, of course, there's a secret or a rather an unspoken reason why they might also like to delay. And that is because You've had this, uh, all this talk of a kind of a silent coup against Jeremy Corbyn. It's quite clear that Jeremy Corbyn is a drag on the, uh, on the polling numbers of the Labour Party. And they can't uh, have anything like a leadership election in the next few weeks. But if the election was postponed until the spring, that would give 
the party an opportunity if it wanted to, to change its leadership. And a change of leadership would, uh, according to all the polls at least, certainly boost the party. So one last question, if you wouldn't mind, Dennis. It seems to me from the landscape that you've laid out here that it all hinges on the Labour Party and the internal pretty fraught debate, as I understand it, going on between different wings of the Labour Party on the best strategy to adopt. And perhaps there might be some, you know, attempts just to slow things down in order to get past Christmas the way you've described it there. Is this in the gift of Jeremy Corbyn? Can the people like Keir Starmer, who don't want an, want an election right now for some of the reasons you've described, can they can they block him? Can they stop him um, proposing a vote on no confidence? Yeah, I mean, basically, if, uh, if Labour MPs uh, don't uh, go for it, then it's kind of not going to happen. I mean, they, I suppose they can't actually, sorry, in terms of tapering a, a motion of no confidence, they can't really stop him doing that. But obviously they can uh, decide to vote how they want to. So for another, in other words, if Boris Johnson were to go for uh, his two-thirds majority and Jeremy Corbyn said, yes, I'll vote with you, uh, it may be that he doesn't take all his Labour MPs with him. So, you know, so, uh, but I, I think it's probably unlikely to get to that point. I imagine that they will work out uh, you know, their line. What, what has been the pattern with Jeremy Corbyn is that he has tended to retreat uh, at the last minute, uh, you know, without necessarily uh, making it obvious that he's doing so. And so, uh, you know, and, and at the moment, what the conventional wisdom at Westminster is, is that his, uh, you know, his last remaining excuse not to have an election is about to be swept away as soon as the Europeans grant this three-month extension. Uh, but, you know, if there's if your last excuse is swept away, what you normally do is you think up another one if you want an excuse to do something you don't want to do. So I wouldn't say it's definite that uh, you know that Jeremy Corbyn has to agree to an election. No question, but that Boris Johnson would like to have an election as soon as possible. And what the part of the dispute within Downing Street is is whether he's better to go for an election before Brexit is resolved, so while he's still fighting for Brexit, or should he go? Uh, having delivered it. And one of the reasons why uh, they feel he's in a particularly good position now is because uh, the fact that he has a deal means that he can appeal not only to all those Leave voters up in the North and the Midlands, but also to uh, a lot of those Conservative voters who might have been a bit worried about the idea of a no-deal Brexit. He can say, look, I have this deal, and if you vote for me, we'll be able to get it through and we'll be leaving in an orderly fashion. Right, we should leave it there for today. Thanks very much for joining us, Dennis. Thank you. It's time to focus on what matters. Nourish your mind with Headspace and the Irish Times. Headspace connects you to yourself. The Irish Times connects you to the truth. Headspace gives you a healthy perspective. The Irish Times gives you a wider perspective. Take a premium digital subscription with the Irish Times and enjoy 12 months free access to the Headspace app. Pause. Breathe. Focus. Subscribe at irishtimes.com. Terms and conditions apply. And we're joined now by Harry McGee and Jennifer Bray. You're both very welcome. Thank you, Hugh. Um, Just to you again, Pat, because you were listening in on the the conversation with Dennis there. Do you agree with his analysis? And there there, there seem to be two, two key elements here. One is a debate probably happening right now in Downing Street about which course of action to pursue election or get the or, or get the agreement through. And the other one is the the tensions within Labour. Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think that, and those two things are related because, of course, Labour's difficulty is the Conservatives' opportunity, uh, to coin a phrase. And uh, and there are certain parallels, I suppose, with the situation here that we'll probably come to in a few minutes. 
But if Labour are 10 points behind in the polls, as they uh, as, as they have been on average of the last number of polls, then of course the Conservatives are going to want an election. In a way, though, I think we'll have to wait and see the exact form of an extension that is offered by the EU if, as Dennis says, and uh, something I heard a good deal of chatter about last night, there is a... Uh, there is this flextension idea whereby they can, they have an extension until, UK has an extension until the end of January. But if it passes the deal before then, uh, then it can leave uh, before then. Uh, if if it is that, then I think uh, Boris Johnson will be tempted, given that Labour will try to frustrate, I assume, his desire for an election. I think he will try and get the deal done in as short a time as possible. And if he can get that done within... 10 days, two weeks, then perhaps he can still go for that pre-Christmas fate election in the village halls and uh, and churchyards of, uh, yes. of, of, of Merry England. So um, so I, I, I think, you know, as Dennis says, if you watch the way Downing Street is operates, it often operates along these twin tracks. So the push for the election and the push to get the deal ratified uh, can can take place simultaneously. Now, last night, he did say that he would, uh, Boris Johnson did say that he would pause the uh, the legislation. But I think once we hear from the, once we hear from uh, the Donald Tusk, and I understand as we speak that Mr. Tusk has spoken to Leo Varadkar on the phone as part of his uh, round of consultations with European leaders. So we should get some clarity, I think, uh, fairly shortly as to what the uh, what type of uh, of extension is offered, and the duration of the, that extension is offered by the EU, and uh, and it, it ball would be then back in Boris Johnson's court to say what he is going to do. One final point I think is that it demonstrates, I was saying earlier, the importance of momentum in politics. The momentum is with Johnson now, and I think that that is a really important factor in. Uh, perhaps enabling him to get the deal done sooner rather than later. And I was get wondering, act I was wondering in relation to that, that Harry, myself and Declan, our producer, were talking about this before we started started recording. And the, the, the two options have two potential pitfalls as also. And they're kind of Theresa May-shaped pitfalls. One is you go back into this legislative process and you get bogged down in procedure in the House of Commons and you lose that momentum, which Pat is talking about, and you start to look less dynamic and you start to look more weak and you find yourself in that trap. And the other one, of course, is to say, we're fantastic, we're rising in the polls, we're going to beat the hell out of them, we're going to go for an election and we're going to come back with a comfortable majority to achieve our objectives. That didn't turn out too well for Theresa May either. No, but the difficulty with pursuing either of those strategies is it we're into the era of fixed-term parliaments in the UK. So an election essentially is in the gift of the Labour Party. So the Labour Party can, can if it wants, and if it were sensible, uh, it would... Uh, try to to string the legislative process out for as long as it possibly can. Because if you go with the polls, and the polls do tend to be more accurate in the UK because they're, 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 you're talking about straighter constituencies, you're talking about first-past-post, so you don't have the subtleties that are associated with the Irish electoral system. Uh, and if one were to believe the... Uh, the, the polls in the UK, having said that, so many polls in the UK have been inaccurate in the past. Mm. I take back everything <laughs> I said earlier on. I, I, I give you 2015 for an example. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, the Scottish independence referendum, even though they got it kind of right towards the end. So the Scottish, the, the, the general election polls underestimated Labour significantly last time. Scottish independence polls were pretty bionic. Yeah, the 2015 the polls didn't predict a Conservative majority either, which they did get in the end when David Cameron won. In 2015, sorry, yes. yes and yeah. in 20. 
17, they underestimated. I successfully brought you on on a tangent from which we might never return. Um, So, um, I mean, Boris is very strong at the moment. And you can see it from the anecdotal evidence as well. I was looking at Newsnight the night before last, or maybe even last night, and there was a a video report from Scunthorpe. And you saw people who had been Labour supporters all their lives who wanted just to get out of the UK and who are contemplating voting uh, Conservative for the first time in their lives, just solely on on the Brexit issue. And this is part of the calculation, I'm sure, of the Conservative Party. Uh, the Labour Party want to look, some of them, most of them now seems, seem to want a, a referendum attached to it. That won't be acceptable to the Tories. I think they'll try to manufacture some kind of a row that will make an, an election inevitable. But still, it's in the gift of the Labour Party. And the timing, as Dennis was saying, is very tight because it, if it this is. slips for 10 days, two weeks, well, then you can't have an election before well, it's Christmas. 18 days. It's 18 days over here and it's 25 days in the UK. So uh, the, in order for them to have an election on the 28th of November, which I think is the, is the preferred date, everything would have to be sorted by the 3rd of November. That's a very, very tight time That's not frame. going to happen, is it? I don't think it is, to be honest with you. No, but they could go until, what was the date that Dennis had, the 12th well, of December? Well, there were two others, the 5th or the 12th were yeah. the two the others before the, the Holly and the Ivy goes up. Possibly and you before the, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and, and it does, it has implications here as well because there's been chatter uh, about a possible election here as well. And um, Leo Varadkar will have to make a calculation. He has said uh, his preferred date is May 2020. Uh, it was understood that if a deal were struck on October 31st, that that would be a changed circumstances uh, type of scenario where he could call an election. But because a deal hasn't been struck and because there's a pause, he will have to calculate uh, whether uh, he can take the gamble of going for election and taking a hit uh, of, of some proportion uh, from the electorate for, for going early and going cynically. And uh, parties have been bitten uh, by going early before Charlie Hawley in 1989 is a very good example uh, of that, as was Theresa May uh, when she went for an early election after succeeding David Cameron. So he'll have, he have to add that into the calculation that he's making. My instinct at the moment is that if there isn't a kind of definite Brexit deal or a horizon or something that looks like Brexit is going to happen, I think he's going to delay until the new year and perhaps even until May of next year. However, I do get the impression, Jennifer, from Harry's Digest this morning and all your reports over the last couple of days, and we go into this detail of some of this buttongate stuff a little bit uh, a little bit later, um, that there's a kind of a febrile atmosphere, that there's a sense that the temperature is rising, that the pre-election excitement in, in Dolan. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. I mean, just covering the the story in relation to the the voting controversy. The last couple of days have seen both press offices or both teams and, and both TDs on both sides furiously going through old videos to try and catch each other out. Um, there is a real whiff of an election off all of it, I'm not going to lie. But, you know, if you look at the reason why we haven't had an election before, it's closely related to the fact that with Brexit came a lot of uncertainty. And we still have that uncertainty. And you'd have to wonder, would Leo Varadkar take a gamble and take a risk like that when we actually don't have a Brexit resolution. I mean, yes, it was historic in a sense that there was a, a Brexit deal struck last night, the first one uh, to have done so in the, in the House of Commons. And that, I think, is a victory for Boris Johnson. But the deal is not over the line. There's a long road yet to go. And I think um, if if Leo Varadkar was going to take a gamble like that, it could go wrong. Now, having said that, you would look at a situation like we're in now where we have members of the Fianna Fáil front bench being forced to resign from, from their portfolios. And you'd think to yourself, if there was ever a time, if there was ever a controversy that, you know, this could be it. Um, there's a, a lot of political capital to be gained on the back of this for Leo Varadkar and for Fine Gael. 
But once again, that in itself is risky because now we've seen a lot of Fine Gael TDs. The dirt is spreading Yeah, everywhere. exactly. And, and, and there's five Fine Gael ministers who've now been referred on to the Dáil's Internal uh, Ethics Committee to examine, you know, whether they had voted for absent colleagues or whether ab- colleagues voted for them when they were absent. So, you know, it has spread to both sides. So it could be tricky to even go on that, but it, you know... Who knows, yeah. basically. I, 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 in light of that, I was surprised, Pat, by our, our lead story, uh, co-written by you this morning. The very last quote is from a, a government source, and I read it. And if they're having an election, that's that's the British, we're having an election, the source said. That seems like a somewhat different position. That's regardless of uh, where Brexit is at, is it? Yes, and uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that the desire of this source um, will be satisfied Frankly, I think it will be more difficult, a lot more difficult for the Taoiseach to manoeuvre an election. Now, ultimately, he's a Taoiseach. He can call an election if he so wishes. But to manoeuvre an election that begins, uh, which campaign begins on the right note for him, I think will be more difficult unless there is a, uh, unless there is at least a medium term resolution of Brexit in the UK. So if there is an election before the, uh, as one of the possibilities that Dennis is suggesting, if there's an election before the withdrawal agreement is ratified by the UK, if it is, if, if it remains paused, uh, as it were, I think that will be more difficult for the Taoiseach. Impossible, now, sure. Very... I mean, we've been suffering the zombie government for a year and a half in the national interest until Brexit is done. And then just on the point where it may or may not be done and it's still in the balance to some extent. I think you're right. I think it will be difficult, perhaps not impossible, but I can tell you for sure that there is a very strong lobby within government uh, in favour of an election if there is a UK election, uh, regardless of whether there is a resolution of Brexit. I think that would be difficult, but uh, it is certainly a, a case that I hear very frequently and at some volume occasionally from Absolutely. within government. Yeah, and, and people would point back to a time when Andy Kenny had a very similar dilemma. Go in November or, or go the following year and it's impossible to have a crystal ball looking forward or backwards in some ways in that we don't actually know what would have happened if he had gone in November, but the indications are that they would have fared better at the polls. It could hardly have been worse. Yeah, oh, no, well, that's true. Well, that's no, true. And I, I think they are getting ready for the possibility of a November election. I noticed that they selected two candidates in Waterford last night to replace John DC. But again, there's a difficulty with uh, the timing of it. The window is very narrow indeed for this government as it is uh, for the government in the UK. Uh, here, the election campaign takes 18 days uh, it has to be 18 days at a minimum, uh, excluding Sundays and bank holidays, which means 21 days. So if they were to hold an election on the 28th or the 29th of November, uh, they would have to really make uh, a decision within the first week uh, of November or very shortly thereafter. And I how, think does December, how does Christmas fit into Irish calculations? We've heard how it fits I, I, into I think British calculations. Everyone I've spoken more family to, oriented. Yeah, I, <laughs> well, we don't have the same I, village hall faiths, do we? You would tend to use national schools, so it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's different logistics. You could, run it, you could run it right up to Christmas, presumably, legally and yeah, but technically, not. whether that would be politically possible. Remember two years ago when election fever was again in the air over the resignation of Francis Fitzgerald and I remember at one point in early December... Fine Gael TDs after all the indication had been from government buildings and from Leo, Varad, uh, Leo Varadkar's allies that he was going to go for, for an election and Fine Gael TDs came back from their constituencies uh, after one weekend and said uh, that's not happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if as well, 
if you were also to look at beyond the issue of the date of the election, I think what's becoming really clear uh, are the messages and the attacks that they're going to come up against each other. So you're seeing on, let's say, for example, online on social media, Fine Gael are now tweeting hashtag reckless Fianna Fáil. And they'll use this voting controversy to feed into that, that they're reckless, you know, that they're sloppy, that they haven't really changed that much. Whereas on the other side, even at the Fianna Fáil presidential dinner that I was at, you can see the Micheál Martin of Fianna Fáil attacking the government for incompetence in relation to spending public projects, broadband plan, National Children's Hospital, but also this idea of them being detached. They're detached from housing, they're detached from the health crisis and uh, that will be their attack. And then on the flip side, again, Leo Varadkar said, well, me and my team, I've got my team around me, you know, Simon Coveney, who else could you imagine in Brussels, Pascal Donoghue, who else could you imagine um, organising the budget. So, And that's the, not an uncommon strategy for an incumbent government because no, the, yeah. those, those those politicians are more established, they're more, uh, they're, they're more they're, in the public they're, they're eye, people known. know their yeah. names, yeah. The far you know, they've been known. in power for a while. Mm. That's always a, always part of the dynamic, isn't yeah. it? When so, yeah. Government's been in power for quite a long while. Exactly. But let me it ask often you overestimates the uh, affection and respect <laughs> that the <laughs> public true. hold for incumbent ministers, in my experience. Let me ask you about this, this button gate thing. I was noted on, on Twitter the, that... that Lion of Irish journalism, Vincent Brown, raised his head and growled yesterday that this was typical of the kind of nonsense that the political classes, I think including your good selves, focused on as opposed to real issues like housing and health and so on and so forth. And he has a point. He absolutely he? has a point. He really has a point. And I would agree with him to a certain extent. So first of all, the issue of a TD voting for another TD who is absent and not in the chamber is very serious. Sure. I would absolutely agree with that. But all, this other issue, the side issue of well, I, I called down to my colleague because I was on the phone and they pressed my button. I mean, it's sloppy, but it's not the world's biggest deal. And I think there is a really big difference there. But I did think uh, Miriam um, Lord of this parish uh, has an excellent piece in today's paper where she talks about uh, the fact that there was this issue, uh, this apology issue to the victims of the cervical check controversy yesterday. And they were left waiting for a while and they were looking down at this tit for tat across the doll in relation to the voting um, controversy. And I just think... She makes a really good point. You know, there are women up there who will never be able to have kids. There were men up there who had lost their wives. And these are the things that matter. Uh, and issues like housing, issues like health, they matter and people care about those. So I do think I would agree with them to a certain extent on that. But voting for someone who's not in the chamber is an issue. And Harry, I mean, you write about this to some extent at the Digest as well today, you know. To the extent that it is important, and I think it is important, Michael McDougall writes about this in, in the Irish Times today as well, the order of business of the doll. You guys live half your lives up there. Um, I don't know how familiar people are with the setup because what they see on television is quite limited. I've been up there a couple of times. It's a sort of a, it's a, it's a, it's an amphitheatre and you guys have this sort of, you're kind of right where the choir would be in a nice church. You're sort of behind looking down from this this wooden balcony and then up above that there's these, uh, there's the glass, glassed in public galleries and you guys are all subject to certain kinds of codes of behaviour that's why you're also well dressed for example because there are requirements there but that's yeah, one of the reasons I understand that's one of, yeah yeah but the main one and you know and there are rules about using your mobile phones you and electronic you devices laptop, yeah. and the same is true of the visitors none of which applies to our elected representatives and Obviously, I've seen quite a lot of what goes on in the House of Commons over the last few months on the telly. They don't all seem to be on their phones all the time. Um, they they seem to have different... Obviously, every house has different rules. But should they be on their phones all the time? Should be should they be running up to the back of the place to be taking well, calls? Should that, they be doing all that kind that's, of stuff? Um, it's, I, I don't think it's a trivial story. I think uh, the, the first instance that Jan, Jennifer talked about, uh, a TD being absent while a, a vote was taken, is actually unconstitutional because the Constitution requires 
that every TD should be present and voting. So presentalism is a fundamental requirement. So Timmy Dooley and Dara Cleary were both missing when votes were cast in their name. So that's not only against the standing orders of the Dáil, it's also unconstitutional. Does that mean it's illegal? It, it's illegal. Well, it's unconstitutional. I, I'd, I'd, I'd have to defer to uh, one of my friends from down the road uh, to tell me if it's, uh, if it's illegal or not. Harry, if I'm not mistaken, you have a law degree, please. I do, yeah. But it's a long time since I studied law, so don't ask me uh, precise questions like that on a Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning even. Um, but the, the, the second point I think is also equally important. I think a, a minister or a TD who goes into the Doyle during the voting block and goes up the back to have a chat and get some surf down below to kind of press his or her button for 40 minutes. I think that's wrong also. And I think that that practice is a very bad practice. And I'm glad that the Cancordia is now making sure that every person who is voting has a designated seat. Do you think that this has got sloppier over the years? Do you think it's, it's bad it's, habits which just kind of Well, it's like in. the use of mobile phones. It's like the, 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 the slippage of the kind of decorum that used to apply in, in, the, in the House. What really happened essentially is uh, that uh, you, you used to have a majority... Uh, government. Um, and then we, from 2011 onwards, uh, the situation became more volatile. It kind of turned up a little bit. And in 2011, a lot of independents were uh, elected who refused to abide with the dress code, for example. And uh, the the, uh, the TDs themselves essentially make up the rules of the House. And the, the TDs weren't strong enough, really, to, to, to resist that. I think the Corley at the time, Sean Barrett, tried to resist it and he, and he didn't succeed. Uh, in relation to the use of mobile phones, uh, there are rules in relation to mobile phones. Uh, everybody seems to ignore them and nobody seems to invigilate them or nobody seems to supervise them uh, I- in the vicinity of the house. I mean, the as, underlying, a, as a slumly dresser problem. myself, I'm sympathetic to the, um, to the, to the no-tie brigade, but actually, the, I think the phones the, thing is different. Uh, I, I mean, there's a fun, there's a, the underlying problem is the lack of seriousness with which uh, many TDs treat their, uh, responsib- their legislative responsibilities in the Dáil chamber. And all these other things exactly. are simply symptoms uh, of that. Uh, the, the slovenly dressers in, uh, in the Dáil, I think, uh, should dress uh, more formally in the Dáil as a mark of respect and seriousness. But many of the most slovenly dressers in the Dáil were the best TDs when it came to uh, the scrutiny of legislation <laughs> and the raising of issues. So it's not the, 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 the problem, uh, the problem uh, that the doll faces, I think, is much wider than simply people not wearing shirts and ties within it. Um, to go back to the earlier point that you made about, uh, about Vincent Brown and that this isn't an important, saying that there, this isn't an important issue, that the more important issues are health and housing and so forth. I mean, that's, that that may be entirely true in that these are more important health and housing are more important issues but the reason why there is such a fuss over this is that it is a point of difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and a point of attack between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and they do they have there are clear dividing lines between them on this whereas in actual fact in broad policy terms, they largely agree so what are on those things lines? like health what are those lines and of division housing. There? The lines of division between them on this point is that Fianna Fáil TDs have done something which Fianna Gael TDs are, uh, are, yeah, it's, are attacking. It's, it's Fianna Gael attacking Fianna Fáil for a lack of probity and Fianna Fáil coming back and saying, well, that's the elite over there 
So the kind of... But is that what they're saying or are they not saying, saying well, actually, this is... This is everybody's out of, of touch. It's, yeah. you're, you're seeing a proxy election campaign happening uh, in, in, in a kind of a minuscule way at the moment in which both sides are kind of rehearsing the lines that they might be using during a real election campaign. Yeah, like the reckless line. Reckless being full. Detached from the guilt. Is the other contributory part of this, Jennifer, the fact that, I mean, Lisa Chambers um, accidentally voted. Um, So accidentally voted twice because she voted in somebody's button and Mm. voted in another. And it appears to me that she didn't bother to correct it because she seemed to feel that it just didn't matter. Uh, I think the vote was a kind of a two to one uh, in terms of whatever the vote vote was on. Understandably, she thought it didn't matter when all the people around her were voting for one another when they were up at the back of the chamber. So I'm, I suppose what I'm asking is, is this a particular function of the way the doll is currently constituted in what, thank God, we've given up calling new politics, where votes really don't matter very much. Everything's fixed in advance because of the, because of the confidence and supply. Yeah. Thing. I mean, if you, you know, it, it used to be the case that if a government lost a motion or a government lost on, on a bill, that that would be quite serious. And that's not the case anymore. If there's an opposition bill and it passes, it goes nowhere um, to the point that it, when these motions are, are launched on the plinth on Tuesday morning, Fewer journalists are turning up to those doorsteps because that is never going to go anywhere. And Brendan Howland made this point uh, yesterday morning. He was saying that um, uh, bills in the House, opposition bills, when they're passed, they have about as much clout as a local debating society. And you'd have to agree with them. And there was a time there where private members' uh, bills went absolutely nowhere. And some of them, I know, have that's not necessarily 100% the case, but it is indicative of the fact that this malaise that it doesn't really matter, they're not going to go anywhere, so what's the point? Mm. So, you know, why not vote here and then say, oh, I better go back to my seat and vote. I mean, I'm not saying that's right. I don't think it is. But is it a symptom of the problem? Yeah, absolutely. I think there have been, there's certainly been, uh, the, the number of private members' bills has certainly gone into three digits. There's been well over 100 uh, in this uh, doyle. And the, um, the number that have actually made it through to be enacted I think are um, I think it's three. Mm. There's a James Brown one in mental health. There's Josepha Madigan's one in relation to divorce, and then one that Pierce Doherty mm. brought forward. I think there might have been a Michael McGraw one as well. So three or four. Fracking as well. Hmm? Fracking. Fracking as well. So five. So you're, you're talking about single digit success out of, out of a five percent success, maybe four percent success. Most of them go nowhere. One of the what things a waste we're of everybody's all, time and absolutely. And we were pouring through the videos to see if we could see a glimpse of a minister in the background who was meant to be in the chamber voting or see Regina Doherty's shoe, shoe as she walked pat behind Tommy Bruin on the walkway on her way out of the Doyle chamber. One of the things I noticed... <laughs> like Cinderella's all, slipper. Oh, one, the, one of the, the things worst. I noticed about all the votes, Hugh, was the, the number of votes that the government actually lose. They lose a lot of votes. And I, 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 I back in 1989, 1989, Charlie Hawhey uh, called an election uh, early uh, because he had lost one vote too many in, for his lost minority for, for his minority government. Now, that was kind of an excuse, Maria. Yeah. But at the same time, it was almost unprecedented for a government at the time to lose so many private members' motions. Now it's become so uh, run-of-the-mill that nobody really and cares no about fact, it. There's no consequence. Just a very last thought on this, Pat, if, if, if you don't mind. If we were to look at the Ipsos MRBI poll, which we, uh, which we ran last week, um, and if that were to proved to be correct and were translated into a general election result, we'd almost certainly end up with a similar kind of a setup with another confidence and supply. There wouldn't be a workable majority for a coalition government based on those numbers. So do we not need to figure out how to run this stuff but properly? This, that, 
that is precisely not just last week's poll, but if you take a selection of polls, average on polls over the last six months or so, then it's very difficult to see not just a majority government for Fianna Fáil uh, or, or Fianna Gael. Clearly that's not going to happen, but a viable majority exactly. for, a, for a coalition. So some form of confidence in supply is uh, certainly not unlikely to be uh, to be the next government. Exactly how that comes about, I think, would be a little bit more conf- with complicated. With the same old but nonsense that is, with, with Harry has just but described. But that is precisely why Parliament and politics need to figure out how to do it better. Because at present... It is not working very well, I think. On on that uh, downbeat note, we'll leave it there. Thanks to Pat, to Harry and to Jennifer for coming in today. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Condon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. And remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.